Welcome to the podcast, Risk is the New Kale. Each episode, I talk with folks who have figured out how to extract opportunity from risk. As someone who has spent a career controlling risk, I want to know those who embrace it. Risk is the new kale. Good for you. Hard to take. say I'm super grateful that the two of you agreed to do this and I was picturing <laughs> what you were doing this morning and I thought Liz you probably went to your mom and dad's house for brunch and your dad has roped you into doing this to a woman you've never met <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? pretty accurate <laughs> he's a board director and investor and a dad he's had a stellar career as a very successful business person and philanthropist and if he's all in he's all in she is his daughter. She's the youngest Canadian ever to have climbed the highest peak on all seven continents. And she did all of that by the time she was 26, and then wrote a book, and then became a firefighter. This is a family that doesn't do anything by halves. So welcome to John Rose and Liz Rose. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Oh, it's super to have you. Okay, so I'm going to start with the really big question first. Um, John is parents. What was it like waiting to hear from Liz to know if she had survived summiting Everest? Yeah, that's uh, that's that was quite a time. So uh, maybe I'll back up and say we decided that when she was going to go and climb Everest, that for those days. Um, Everest is a, a two-month journey where you're, you know, acclimatizing, etc. But when we got down to the, the three or four days, Susan and I decided to go to Salt Spring Island uh, and be on a boat and just um, be together ourselves. And um, then we got a phone call from a colleague that said, I hope Liz isn't climbing today because someone just died up there. And... Uh, I know, I just kind of thought, how could you how could you end up making a call like that? Um, but what was interesting at the time, because we didn't we didn't have the time to to get too nervous about her venture to Everest because three weeks prior was when she had met um, a fellow climber in Aconcagua and decided and was invited to go to, to Everest. But what was really interesting is uh, we had everybody light a candle uh, to um, to send her best wishes. Yeah, and it was it was really interesting. There were just tons of people that really got behind Liz's um, quest, and then we heard that she had summited, and then the worry began because it was what happens in the in the descent whenever you look at any of the climbing movies it's not on the way up it's on the way down so we worried a lot tried not to uh i you heard from social media so not directly from me for when i summited so exactly zero communication okay yeah so yeah so zero communication from liz heard from social media and then i'll let liz tell some more of the story but i happened to be in um a colleague's office and I see this huge number come across my iPhone which I figured had to be a satellite phone um, and uh, I got so emotional that I just pressed the button and then spoke to Liz and it was it was just emotionally overwhelming I'd never had such a flood of 
uh, emotion hit me like it did. Uh, so I think sometimes you, you end up having this pent-up feeling and it isn't until you're able to just release that it, uh, you know, you, you think back and say, wow, that just, oh, I'm so glad she's safe. Yeah, I had asked um, my mountain guide if I could call my parents from the top and they said, like they would rather they had a satellite phone there but they're like no i think it's best you wait until you're safely down to make that phone call so anyways got down a couple of days later and that was probably the most excited phone call i've ever made so you had to wait like more than 24 hours to actually let them know what was that like for you knowing they were on the other side of the world worrying about you yeah, I just tried to stay focused. It was pretty treacherous coming down. So all my focus was on that. And some of my group had stayed an extra night on the mountain um, at one of our first camps um, just to rest. But I had asked if I could um, go with a guide all the way down just to be down as safe um, as quick as possible. So yeah, but I didn't realize anyone, there was three people that had died while I was up there summiting, but we don't hear any of the news besides what's going on around us. So um, I was happy not to know any of that until I was down. It's amazing. I, I think this is one of the things I so admire about the two of you. And Liz, your, your focus and your presence of mind in um, a very, very complex critical situation is... It's something I'm really fascinated by because I'm talking to all these people who make these choices under quite a bit of pressure. And in that moment, you know, you focused on getting down safely because you're in the long game. You're going to survive this descent. And, and your parents are in the long game, too, in terms of their support. It's amazing. So your mom, Susan, wrote you a beautiful email, Liz, while you were at one of the camps um, preparing for the climb um, up Everest. And she said, and this is in your book, remember the story is not about the summit. It's an amazing yeah. quote. So what does that mean to you? So I think she kind of just meant um, embrace every moment on the whole journey and don't be focused on only making it to the summit, live in the moment and be present um, and like surround yourself, um, get to know the people you're with and just don't worry about the outcome and in enjoy. It's kind of a lesson for life, isn't it? Do you think that you two are um, high amplitude people? And by that, I mean like you really experience life. So when you say live in the moment, you're not just like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm in living in the moment, but you're like really taking it in. Yeah, I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was interesting. One of the one of the things that, that Liz was trying to get me into doing was um, entering uh, the competition for Amazing Race Canada. Oh, good grief! And... Really? Yeah, we made it to the final round of interviews. We did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, wow. yeah, we had the one-on-one -on -one interview with them, and and then I started to look at some of the things that they were getting them to do, and I was thinking, oh, you know. But anyway, it was uh, we 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 ended up not making it, um, which uh, at, once you'd gone through it, it was I mean it was great to go through, but I think it would have been something that would have been uh, incredibly 
fun for us to have done. Mm. Uh, yeah, we, we were heartbroken that we didn't make it, but even the whole experience of making the videos and doing in-person interviews and stuff was special. And that's now we really have those cool. Memories yeah. To look back on. Yeah, totally. Um, you would have eaten, you know, ended up eating raw amphibians and stuff to get through. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. Completely exactly. out of our comfort zones, but. Yeah, no, there's some pretty gross stuff on that. That's yeah. so great. Awesome. So I feel like there are other adventures in your future. Do you have a sense of what those are? Um, my bucket list, I would absolutely love to go to space. So I'm trying to get John on board for that one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Oh, dear. Um, I actually had to reconcile because both of my kids said they would sign up for the Mars mission. And I had to reconcile that what that meant as parents yeah. might yeah. mean that you actually never see them again because. Yeah, I'd, I'd be right. I'd be right there with them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I can totally see it. All right. So um, we're going to change gears because I really want to understand if you believe other families and yours have the same kind of conversations around the dinner table. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) That's a a tough one to answer. We, it wasn't though we had these kind of conversations around the dinner table. I think things started back when Liz's twin brothers were about 10 and a friend of mine who had twins said, you know, it's probably good to have a one-on-one trip with them uh, on a regular basis so they're not just the twins. And then when Liz got to be 10 or 11, she goes, well, what about me? And so we started then having our one-on-one trips. And that's really how it got started. And uh, Kilimanjaro... I'll let Liz answer how she roped me into doing that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, I was living in Toronto at the time, um, looking for a job and didn't get my dream job instantly. And so I just felt the need to go accomplish something. And um, I thought of the idea of climbing Kilimanjaro. And then I was like, oh, you know what? Like my dad might be interested. So I talked to my mom first and she's like, oh, I don't know. But I mean, if anyone can convince him, it would probably be you. So yeah. And called you up. <laughs> I had three weeks notice. I didn't have hiking boots. Oh, she gave you three yeah. weeks notice. Wow. That's, yeah. That's nice of me. <laughs> and I think you said and, uh, something like, Liz, do you have any idea how tall Kilimanjaro is? Not realizing what the next three years were going to be about for her yeah yeah really it would you know just start out as another adventure and I sort of remember saying do you think we can do it and Liz says yes dad we can do it so I thought okay you know (laughs) um, she's done the research and away we went so Liz I just want to ask you because you have this mantra that all you need is to say yes to your goals and you really live your life that way so tell me about following Kilimanjaro, how you actually knew that you were going to be determined about this next phase of your life? Yeah. So I feel like so many people talk about ideas that they want or goals that they want to achieve in life. But, um, until you like decide yourself and take the first step of saying yes and doing research, making plans, um, right. 
right. it will then start to become a reality. So after Kilimanjaro, I absolutely loved it. I had no idea that it was going to lead to me climbing any more mountains at all. Um, I was working on a cruise ship at the time, so it was six months on, two months off. So in my next two months off, I was like, ooh, like I'd love to go on another adventure because I loved Kilimanjaro so much. So that's when I decided to go to Everest Base Camp. And it wasn't until Everest Base Camp I even had learned what the Seven Summits were. Okay. So a, a girl in my group, um, her aunt had done the Seven Summits. And the second I heard that, I was like, oh, well, I've done one. So I, I guess I can do them all as well. And literally just decided right then and there without doing any research that that would be my lifelong goal. So it rang a bell for you. Like you knew it when you heard it. Yeah, it was like instantly I Googled what they were and my mom was like, oh, okay. But a super pivotal moment in my life to learn what the seven summits were and be embraced in the mountaineering culture at the time. And um, yeah, it just kind of sparked something in me that I didn't realize my life was changing so much right then, but it did. Okay, mountaineering culture, that's an interesting term. Um, it is a bit of a cult, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But it's really neat to see like everyone come from all over the world sharing that similar goal of reaching the summit and experiencing um, what it's like to be a team. Right, right. Probably an experience that none of us who are kind of flatlanders really understand <laughs> that kind of complete reliance on a team. Yeah, you build relationships with people very quick. Even dad will know from Kilimanjaro um, how instantly tight you bond with your group because you need to rely on each other. Absolutely. I'd like to go back to your book, Liz, and I have a copy of it here. It's written in the snow, which is a beautiful title. And you've described your journey. And every time an opportunity came across uh, to climb. You wrote about it as though it was the most logical thing to do, like just to jump on the next climbing team. And you made that decision, I would say, with probably less data than most of the rest of us would make a decision. And that enabled you to do the, all those climbs in three years. So tell me about your thought process there. Lots of it just fell into place. Like my decision to climb Everest, I was climbing in South America and just happened to meet someone who had had the trip organized and he was kind of like, what are you doing in three weeks? And at that time I, I was supposed to go back to a cruise ship, but nothing was set in stone. And so I was like, oh, like, I don't know why. And he was like, oh, well like join my Everest team. I have 30 Sherpas and everything's all ready to go. And you're a strong climber and I'd love to have you. So like not too much thought or research went into it. I knew that I had to talk it over with my family and do my research and prepare for it but it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time and that's kind of how most of it went i made the decision and then researched and got organized afterwards so it was really the threshold was the decision then after that it was like logical like okay now i'm just going to plan this out nice and john um you've had this yeah. tremendous support for liz but I'm curious about how you saw her decision-making. Like for you, was that, yeah, okay, I, I completely understand that. She's a good researcher. And so, um, and she's a good judge of character. 
And I think that's key when you're, you know, going to be part of a team and, um, you know, sort of a, a longer view of the um, trip to Aconcagua was, you know, she uh, and her group were turned away from the summit initially and they got to within sort of 300 meters of it and a bad storm came through and then um, they got pushed down and the mountain was going to be closing in another week and she felt strong enough to, you know, attempt again. So her her question to the, the guy was, I want to go, can you get me another guide? Because nobody else in her group, they were all spent and they said, nope, we're not going to attempt it. And so through that push, she was able to get a, a guide um, and they she had acclimatized, so they went straight to sort of um, the second camp and that's where she met um, the climber that was acclimatizing to go to Everest in three weeks. So I think a lot of it is when the stars align and, you know, you, you do your research and you're, you know, you're driven and you make that opportunity happen. And she was very fortunate that it all sort of came together. Uh, there's a very poignant and I thought actually quite personal and private part of your book, Liz. And you write about um, this discussion of all the potential outcomes of summiting. And in particular, this was the summit of Everest. And what would happen if the worst case scenario came to pass and the practical discussions that you have with family and friends around that. But you also let us into this conversation that your parents had. Uh, I'm trying to think back to that. I know that I made my dad promise if anything happened to me to get me off the mountain because so many people have their bodies left up there. Um... Maybe I could. <laughs> I think the the key for Susan and I, uh, my wife, um, was we knew that if something happened, we would be judged um, fairly or and probably unfairly. Uh, why would you let your daughter go and do something as crazy as allowing her to summit Everest? And we decided that no, we had we had thought it through as you know as Liz's parent and we wouldn't let whatever happened define us as a as a couple we wouldn't let it come through and have us second guess oh should we have done that and blame each other we would say you know what we made that decision and we're going to live with that decision that's what Liz wanted to do and we fully support that and I think that um, was a real strength in our relationship, just having to to deal with that up front. Liz, you um, have, at the end of the book, talked about um, the continuous journey you're on as, as an amazing leader. Um, but I wonder, there's some dark parts of your book. And I really, I, I felt a lot of compassion towards you. And you you didn't dwell on it, but you talked about your feelings around whether you would support your family or friends to do some of the same um, climbs that you did. Would you continue to climb? Are you continuing to climb? And would you go back and do some of those same climbs again? Yeah, I definitely personally would go back and do any of the climbs again. Um, in 2019, I tried to be the first Canadian woman to climb K2, which is the second tallest mountain in the world. Um, due to weather, we were unsuccessful. But 
Um, and then I kind of had to make a decision from there that my next goal would be um, a career job as a firefighter. So before going on my last climb, um, that was all decided. And now I would love to do any of the climbs, go back to K2, but right now I'm happy being a firefighter and that brings me enough challenges um, to face. So I'm content in life, but open to more climbs. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Yeah, I hadn't realized that you had, had gone to, uh, to do K2, which um, I think by all accounts is the hardest climb on the planet. Yeah, definitely very challenging. But yeah, in my book, I joke that I would never let my kids climb Everest. And uh, hopefully I stay true to that. (laughs) Okay, so um, this is a bit of a a sidetrack here. But Liz, I want to understand how uh, comfortable or uncomfortable all of this technical equipment is that you're wearing. Um, And I would like you to take me through what it is. yeah, I know you're sleeping in your clothes probably and you know, in some tent and the wind is howling, but you're up really, really early. <laughs> like what is it to put all that gear on? Can you just go through the steps and Yeah, so when you're high on the mountain, you um you're sleeping in your full snowsuit. So you've got a massive onesie, puffy snowsuit that once you're on the mountain that's never coming off. Um so that's yeah and then but once you leave your tent um you've got to put your massive boots on and then you've got crampons which are metal spikes that dig into the snow or ice and you've got a harness um lots of carabiners and different things clipped to you helmet uh you try to protect your face as much as you can so you've got like a little neck warmer that comes up and covers your face eye protection so you try not to show any skin at all but for the most part you're in all the gear when when you're up there the whole time and are you uh carrying um like in your hands do you have an ice pick like what what are you doing to kind of stabilize yourself too on the way up yeah you've got um an ice an ice axe in one hand and then an ascender or a jumar which is a handle that clips into the rope and so it allows you to go up but if you were to fall it catches your fall um, on the way down and then you've got a backpack full of an oxygen bottle and um, extra layers and any other gear that you might need as well how much how much would you say all of that weighed uh it depends on the mountain um like summit day on everest your pack's maybe 30 pounds or something, but because of the altitude, it feels like a lot more. And then a climb like Denali, you're pulling a sled of about 100 pounds and 60 pounds on your back. So yeah, it really varies from climb to climb. I found that really interesting, you describing being in Alaska and how much more physically strenuous it was because you're hauling all your gear up. Um, and, And it must be a very different climb like technically different, weight different, your team is different. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's nice for some of the others where you have all the helper, helpers, the Sherpas, the porters, um, but somewhere like Alaska and Antarctica, you're just relying on yourself. You're carrying all your food, um, cooking equipment, and your gear. So absolutely everything you need. So completely different climb and different ways of training for that, doing sled poles and 
um, just making sure that you're comfortable with all the weight. Because I'm quite fascinated by the gear. And you're a tech head, John, so you do a lot of work in tech. You support, um, as an investor, a lot of very interesting tech, like the rain stick. And I'm just wondering uh, some of the equipment, um, whether you guys store it now for Liz. <laughs> like, how does that work? Because there must be a ton of it. And it sounds, Liz, like there's different, obviously different setups for every climb. Yeah, they definitely store it all for me, which <laughs> yeah, good. they're not so happy about. <laughs> but in fairness to Liz, she, she did all her research. She's always been one to investigate, um, figure things out, um, what she needed to do, like before she went to Everest, she knew that she needed to have someone train her in using an ice axe. So she hired somebody in Squamish to take her out to uh, train her on using um, an ice axe. So I really was in the background more there to say, okay, do you make, are you sure that you have everything you need to be successful? Um, and, you know, she was very detail oriented and, uh, you know, I, I just felt comfortable knowing that uh, she would make sure that, you know, she had enough um, sets of gloves for, you know, you can use mitts on some days, but if you're using your carabiners, you need gloves because you need the dexterity of your fingers to be able to loop in and loop out. So um, I was very comfortable that she she had that. And, uh, and uh, I guess we never talked about who was going to store everything afterwards. Um <laughs> uh, Parents always <laughs> store. It doesn't matter if it's mountaineering yeah, or exactly. snow tires. So, yeah, that's just the deal. Um, I, I'm impressed. Um, in particular, this is something I've noticed, and, and maybe it's a, a gender thing, but I noticed that women who have technical equipment do very well at attention to detail. And that's just from my experience uh, knowing people who do stunt work in motion picture where they're flying equipment, so their harness and, and where all the wires attach. They're the most meticulous um, in terms of you know when you replace the harness and, and the fact that that's a piece of equipment that's going to save your life. How does the sponsorship ride work, Liz, in mountaineering? Um, it's honestly really hard. I was lucky to have a few um, brands that I would take pictures with um, their products and stuff on the mountain. But I think my main focus was um, climbing for a charity. So I did the last of my seven summits to end my whole adventure for Canuck Place Children's Hospice, which... Um, when it's a, something that's bigger than myself, then people like to get on board. Um, so that was kind of more my main focus rather than trying to get sponsorships for myself. And you're both major philanthropists and you did raise a lot of money for a Canuck place. And I'm just wondering in terms of that sense of satisfaction that, that you were doing something bigger than both of yourselves. I mean, your families. Uh, joined you on that final climb that must have been amazing yeah it was really special to have everyone there with me and the children at Canuck Place they Canuck Place ended up get, giving her a special watch so they could uh, follow her final climb up the mountain and keep track of where she was etc and then the kids wrote on special paper uh, their wishes and then Liz 
uh, let them on fire and they floated off into the heavens. It was a very moving mm -hmm. time. That's beautiful. That's really cool. Is there a contingent in mountaineering where the social media side has kind of taken over? Like you said that you're climbing for a cause bigger than yourself, Liz, but with having to do media and taking pictures of sponsorship logos and stuff, do you see that in elite sport? Is that becoming more of a thing? Yeah, I definitely think now it's becoming more of a thing. It was kind of nice on lots of my climbs not having Wi-Fi and not having to worry about any of that because at altitude, it just brings a whole new level. Going into Everest, I thought I would have a ton of cool photos on the top, but realistically, you have the opportunity to take one or two and you just hope they're good. So yeah, times are, times are changing, but it becomes a lot trickier when... Um, the elements are involved. One of the interesting things uh, going back to Everest was the best Wi-Fi reception for Liz. What time was it there? It was 4.30 in the morning here yes. and it was nighttime there. Yeah. So everybody had gone to bed and so I got up every morning at 4.30 <laughs> uh, to have my 15-20 minutes uh, with Liz and uh, and it was it, it was really it was really special uh, just to kind of hear about, you know, what her day, you know, um, you know, how it was, it had unfolded. And I remember one, one day, one morning I said, oh, I'm going to Canuck Place. We're giving Trevor Linden, president of the Canucks at the time, we're giving him a, a special um, presentation. And Liz said, you tell Trev that I've got the Canucks flag with me and I'll get a picture for him at the top of the mountain if I make it. And so I went and met Super up with cheeky. Trevor. I, love it. <laughs> I, I, I know, my best friend Trevor. <laughs> so I said it word for word, and he laughed. And, uh, and then when Liz came down, she met up with uh, Trevor and uh, gave him the flag, uh, the Canucks flag, and a picture of her holding it on the top of uh, Everest. And, so they had a really nice bond after that. It was great. Oh, you put it blown his mind. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, it was neat. You're a firefighter now, and you went through training to, uh, to be accepted and to become an active firefighter. Of those different types of training, what, what would have served you best? Like, what, what is the physical requirements now of your job? Yeah, so I had a personal trainer during my climbs and I kept um, him on while training for fire so because he knew my okay. body so well. So that was, it was definitely helpful to go straight in from the climbing training to the firefighting training. Um, lots of similar things of carrying a heavy pack and now um, carrying all the fire equipment. So it was a, a helpful transition for sure. But yeah, no, you definitely have to be very physically fit, which I'm learning now in the fire industry. You say that so casually. Oh yeah, no, it was, you know, definitely, you know, helpful. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I wanna ask, um, is there a kind of a psychological profile for people who go into firefighting? You're risking yourself um, and you're also going to observe a lot of trauma. Um, and I think that's quite similar to mountaineering, but there's other aspects that are different. Um, do you have a, a sense of how you see them as the same and different? 
Yeah, they definitely have their similarities um, from being fast asleep in the middle of the night to having to wake up to climb or wake up to go on a call. So just going from zero to 100 um, mm -hmm. really quick to prepare your body for that. Um, so it was nice. I was kind of used to that, but I'm still a very new firefighter. So as far as um, everything I'm seeing and things now, there's no real way to prepare for that. And going into it, I had no idea how I would react. I was hoping I'd be okay um, seeing what I'm seeing. And so far, there's no issues at all. Um, I just treat it like a job and not like a spectator event. So, uh, interesting. Um, okay. That's a cool statement. Yeah. So most people would look at something super gory, but I just try to stay focused and think of the task that needs to get done, um, and listen to my orders from my captain and, um, just treat it that I'm here at work and it's my job to, mm -hmm. um, keep people safe. Yeah, I think your focus really comes through in how you describe that. Like, that's one of your key strengths for sure. Okay, yeah. last question for the two of you. If you had the power to fix anything, any issue on the planet, what would it be? Uh, I would have to say world hunger, that every kid should have access to healthy food um, and no one should go hungry. There's plenty of food in this world that... It's so unfair that um, there's so many people without it. And I, I guess I would add to that to say that, you know, I just think it's so sad in this day and age where people can't celebrate diversities and, and there isn't a higher level of kindness that can trump over um, all the... Uh, egos and um, terrible things that are going on in the world. We somehow need to be re-inspired uh, to value each other and uh, life and help each other do their best, uh, you know, going forward to live a, a purposeful uh, life and one that uh, should be available for everyone from you know, every walk of life. And I don't know how we end up doing that, but I think it all starts with um, getting the word out and, you know, trying to influence in a small circle. And that small circle influences a larger circle. And, you know, uh, hopefully there'll be a, a change where you get enough people thinking that uh, we need to really look after mankind or we won't have it in the future, uh, you know, is, is I guess my wish and hope that uh, somehow that can take place within our lifetime. Well, I'm inspired by both of you. You have this kindness and compassion and your, your place in the planet is to do good for other people. You really see that through your actions and doing things that are for people. Um, that's your higher calling. So I thank you both so much for this, for doing it together. That was amazing. <laughs> Sharing one set of earpods to make it happen. Thank you. Liz, good luck to you in your firefighting career. Seriously, you're a rock star. I love it. Thank you All so right. much. Take care of you too. <laughs>